1 through 10 this morning. Now let me tell you what's going on as far as I can discern as I look through this. Up through 1910, uh, John is talking about the downfall of Rome. He's, he's warning Christians, hey, live for Christ, don't compromise your faith in order to get ahead in life, or you're going to go down the same primrose path that Rome goes down, you're going to be judged like Rome. Now, I believe that in John's mind, now listen very carefully, I believe in John's mind, he thought the second coming was going to happen in his lifetime. In other words, he thought that when God judged Rome, that was all going to happen when the Lord returned, and he was going to set up the kingdom of God. Now, he doesn't say that in the Bible. But I'm thinking, in his mind, that's what he's figuring is going to happen. He's wrong about that. He never writes it down. It's not an inspired thought. I'm just trying to get behind the man's brain here for a moment. Just like Paul. You know, Paul said that uh, Paul was expecting the Lord's return at any moment, wasn't he? And what would happen if the Lord returned back in those days? Would Rome fall? Yeah, Rome would be judged. Would the Christians inherit the kingdom of God? Yeah. So, it ends up that what he says about Rome is true. Rome's going to fall, but the second coming really is going to be much later than I think he anticipates. And so, we see all the way up to verse 10 in Revelation 19 that... He's talking about Romans' fall. And then in verse 11, he starts talking about the second coming. So, uh, now we know there's a gap there. So, here's how I'm going to divide this section. Revelation 19, verses 1 through 4, is going to be the fall or the fate of Babylon, which represents the Roman Empire. Verses 1 through 4, the fall or the fate of Babylon. Okay? And then verses 6 through 10, the future of the bride. The future of the bride. So, we could say the fall of Babylon, the future of the new Jerusalem, if you want to put it that way. Or we could say the fall of the harlot, the future of the bride, which is God's people. Each one of these sections opens the same way. If you look at verse four, uh, verse 1, he says, look at the first verb in verse 1. He said, after these things, watch this. I heard. You see that? I heard. That opens up section 1. Okay. And then... You'll notice as he uh, continues to go on, he talks about that there was a voice in verse 5, and in verse 6 he says, and I heard, and I heard. So we're going to see this concept of I heard. He hears two things, okay? So let's look at section number 1. Let's look at the fate of Babylon. Okay? Remember, Babylon represents the Roman Empire, characterized as a prostitute who tempts people, lures them, uh, in return uh, for their allegiance, uh, she gives them favor. Okay, verse 1. After these things, after what things? After the things in chapter 18. After the fall of Babylon, or Rome and his vision. After he sees that vision, he sees something else. Something else happens. Look what he says in verse 1. I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah which say, simply means, praise the Lord. Now the word, hallelujah, that's the Hebrew. The Greek transliteration is hallelujah. But basically it comes from the Hebrew, hallelujah is used only four times in the New Testament. That's sort of a shock, isn't it? Hallelujah is used only four times in the New Testament. All four times 
in chapter 19 of Revelation. And so we discover that they are going to praise the Lord, and they're going to praise the Lord for a reason. In fact, these four hallelujahs right here in Revelation 19 were the basis for uh, the hallelujah chorus in Handel's Messiah. So some of the words that you hear in Handel's Messiah, and you read in the, in the, uh, the verse, you see right here in this passage. So here's the basis for praising the Lord. Look what he says toward the end of verse 19. He says, Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to Caesar, our God. Isn't that what it says? Oh, no. There's praise. Where is this praise located, by the way? In heaven. The praise that he so this is a heavenly vision. He has a vision of heaven, and in heaven he hears something. He doesn't see anything, but he starts hearing this sound. And it's the sound of a multitude of people just saying, Hallelujah! And what's the hallelujah about? And here it is, that praise and uh, that salvation, which means deliverance, glory, which means boasting, honor, which means Basically, honor, respect, and power belong to our God. Now, these were acts and attributes that Caesar claimed for himself. And see, this is the issue. Who will you praise? Who will you say is your God? Who will you give glory to? Who will you boast about? Who will you say is the great deliverer? When Caesar marched his armies to the edge of the empire to conquer another nation, he said, I come to bring you salvation. I offer you salvation. Now all you have to do is bow down and worship me and give me your allegiance. And so, he says, now if you don't do that, if I don't deliver you, if you don't accept this salvation that I'm offering you, which is deliverance. Deliverance from what? Well, deliverance from other enemies that might attack you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be your protector. If you don't do it, I'm going to snuff you out just like that. Sort of sounds like the mafia. Come in to your little shop. Say, I'm here to offer you protection. Well, who's the protection really from? From the mafia itself. Pay me $200 a month, I'll offer you protection. Don't pay me the $200, your building might not be standing tomorrow. So, in order to be protected, in order to receive the benefits from Rome, people would give their allegiance. They would worship Caesar. They would participate in these meals. And the whole gist of this revelation is John says to the church, don't you do that. Don't you sacrifice the Caesar. Don't you pay him homage. Don't you give him glory. Don't you boast about the Roman Empire and about Caesar. And they said, well, if we don't, we'll be killed. And he says, well, so what? God will deliver you. He'll raise you from the dead. But you need to make sure that your allegiance goes to Him. So, we see that they are praising the Lord, God's people. Okay. Now, what are the supporters of Rome doing at this point, by the way? At this point in this vision, what are the people of Rome doing? What were the merchants doing last week? What were the sailors doing last week? What were the kings doing last week? Whoa! 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 Rome is... Falling, Rome is burning, Rome is 
Whoa, whoa. And guess what you're going to have here? Hallelujah. 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 One group saying, whoa. The other group saying, hallelujah. In the end, this is what you're going to see. In the end, those who look like they were winners in their lifetime are going to be the losers. And those who look like they were the losers because they wouldn't bow the knee are in the end going to be delivered and are the winners. So when you see this, you'll see how all this brings this section to a conclusion. So now look at the reason for the praise. Look at verse 2. For true and righteous are his judgments. In other words, God keeps his word. God said he would deliver us. And guess what? Deliverance is coming, at least in the vision he sees us. And true are and righteous are his judgments. That means justice. In the end, justice prevails. In this lifetime, justice does not prevail usually. People literally get away with murder, don't they? They can't. You get away with every heinous crime you can think of because of our so-called justice system oftentimes is broken. But, not in the end. God is true to his word and he says, I'm going to judge Rome and Rome gets judged. I'm going to judge those who give their allegiance to Rome and he indeed does that. And the Christians will be vindicated. So, this is one of the reasons that they praise the Lord. And then look what he says in the middle of verse 2. For true and righteous are his judgments because, look at this, he's judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. She brought took people down to their moral ruin. And he avenged on her the blood of his servants that were shed by her. Now remember back in chapter 5, the people, the Christians who have been martyred say, When, Lord? When will you avenge our blood? And God says, Don't worry, it's coming. Well, guess what? In the vision it comes. And so John hears everybody praising the Lord because God indeed has avenged his people. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Oftentimes we think we'll take matters in their own hands and we'll do something like you see in a movie, some vigilante thing, you know. We'll avenge the death of our loved one. We'll avenge this. We'll avenge it. No. That's God's work. Our job is to be faithful to the Lord and let him do the avenging on our behalf. And then look what it says. Notice the shouting comes from heaven. And look what it says in verse 3. Again, they said, Hallelujah! And look at the basis for the praise. Her smoke rises forever and ever. Now the basis in verse 1 of the first praise was salvation belongs to God. The basis for the first praise is we've been delivered. The basis for the second praise in verse 3 is Rome is burning. So her smoke rises forever and ever. Now that phrase forever and ever means Rome's defeat is permanent. Rome will never, never rise out of the ashes. And that's the story of empire after empire throughout history. Whether it's the Assyrian Empire, whether it's the Egyptian Empire, the great Egyptian Empire that ruled the world under Pharaoh. Does Egypt, does Egypt rule the world today? No, in fact, their leader was just deposed. 
Where's Assyria? Do you see Assyria ruling anything today? Babylon? Is Babylon around anywhere today? The great Babylonian Empire? How about Greece under Alexander the Great that ruled the world? Where's that empire? Greece can't even pay her debts. And the Roman Empire, where is that today? Well, we know there's a Vatican City. It's about this big size of a postage stamp. See, these empires come and go. How about the uh, Ottoman Empire? Ruled the whole world for a while. Large section of the world. Is that around? Do you ever hear anybody say? Now, the king of the Ottoman Empire the other day had a meeting with the president of the United States. How about the great Soviet Union? And all these different nations under its umbrella. How about the great British Empire that ruled the world when the sun never sets on the British Empire? Well, it sets every day now on the British Empire because there's no British Empire. And every empire that turns its back on God and starts operating at a certain immoral level and starts cutting the corners and and has an economic system the same way falls and Rome falls and it says her smoke in verse 3 rises forever and ever it is permanent so there is that second hallelujah and now we have a third hallelujah look in verse 24 uh, verse 4 and the 24 elders and the four living creatures who we saw way back when people who surround the throne of God they fell down and they worshipped God who sat on the throne saying amen Hallelujah. So you have three hallelujahs. Just as you had three groups last week saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. You have three groups this week saying, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. It's like concentric circles. And these hallelujahs are just reverberating, going out. Because God has kept his word and Rome has been destroyed. Starts with one group, the great multitude, and just keeps going and going and going. Now look at verse 5. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God. Now this is a command. These are instructions. A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants, and those who fear Him, both small and great. In other words, regardless of status. Now, we don't know whose voice this is. Just as a voice came from the throne. Is it one of the 24 elders that spoke? Who circled the throne? Is it one of the four living creatures, the seraphim that spoke? But these are instructions. Who are these instructions to? We don't know that either. Are these instructions to us? Who are left on earth? Or are these, these instructions to Christians who are on earth? While Rome is being destroyed? Or are these instructions to the Christians who are in heaven? We don't know. But notice who's to praise him. Right at the end of verse 5 both small and great. That means rich and poor, uh, senators and peasants, lost and saved. This is what we are called to do. We're called to praise God. So, that actually ends the section. I said uh, the first section. I think I said verse 4. It should actually be verse 5 right there. That ends this first section. So that's the fate of Rome, and the response from heaven is praise the Lord. Okay? Now, let's look at the second little section. It starts at verse 6. We're going to call this the future of the bride. Look at verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. Now notice, in verse 1, he says, I heard something. 
I heard the voice of a great multitude. Look in verse 6. I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. So this is the second scene in this particular vision. As the sound of many waters and the sound of many thunderings, saying, Hallelujah! What's the basis for them saying, Praise the Lord? Here it is. For Caesar, our God, reigns. No, look. Because our Lord God, omnipotent, reigns. So, now that's what Caesar claimed to do. Caesar claimed to reign over the whole earth. But guess who really reigns over the whole earth? God reigns over the earth. In fact, he reigns over this earth right now. We might not recognize it. We may not realize it. But he is the rightful king of the world right now. And others are trying to usurp this power and authority and are claiming to be the rulers of the world. And so, here the Christians are praising the Lord because... The Lord God omnipotent reigns. And therefore there is a call, an announcement. Look at verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. So what he says is, in his vision, he sees all these things that are going to happen. Remember, all these things are happening in the future. In his, in his vision, I mean, they're going to happen in the future, but in his vision, he's saying as if they've happened already. Rome has fallen. Had Rome fallen in the days of John? Hadn't fallen, but in his vision, it's fallen. So, in this vision, he says, hey, the bride has made herself ready. Now, what does it mean, a bride has made herself ready? How does a bride get herself ready today for a wedding? Say she gets engaged on January 1st, and the wedding's going to be on... July 1st. What does she do in that particular time? To get herself ready for the wedding. Yeah, she shops for the first thing she does is go shopping for a dress. Right. So what you see is you see that there's preparation for a wedding that's going to come. Okay. Now, John has told the seven churches that they need to be prepared for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And uh, you'll remember what he said. Here's how the church prepares. Don't give in to idolatry. Remember that back in the first, second, third chapters when he speaks to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Don't give in to idolatry. Don't stop confessing Jesus as Lord. And if it comes to it, be willing to put your neck out and be martyred for the faith. That's what he calls an overcomer. He that overcomes, overcomes what? The temptation to worship idols, the temptation to confess Caesar is Lord. He that overcomes and stays true to his allegiance to Christ is the one who is prepared for the wedding. That's the one who's going to be, in a sense, uh, in the kingdom of God. Now today you usually get prepared with a wedding dress. Now that's very interesting because in verse 8 he says, he talks about a wedding dress. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. See, she's going to get a wedding dress. Remember what the harlot was dressed in? Purple. That's a strange thing to be dressed in. Purple. But real loud. Purple. But she's, and it says, fine linen. Clean. Bright. Fresh. 
just the opposite of the harlot. Harlot's certainly not clean. <laughs> She's not a clean person. But here she is to be arrayed in fine linen. Now watch this very carefully. Look how it's described. For the fine linen is what? Verse 8. The righteous acts of the saints. Look at that. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So how do we get ready for the wedding? By doing something. What are we to do? We are to perform righteous acts. Righteous acts. We are to live differently than the world. Now, our readiness, if the white linen, if that's our wedding dress, in a sense, is the righteous acts of the saints, then that means our readiness is visible to everybody. Because people can see what you're doing. See? Our, our readiness is visible to all because of our actions. So you can say, oh, I believe in Christ, I confess Christ, but if your actions don't show it, then you're not wet ready for the wedding of the Lamb. See, so the white dress <laughs> that we're going to be dressed in is symbolic of something. See, visions are filled with symbols. So what would the white wedding dress represent? Righteous acts. That's how you prepare for this wedding. So you need to say, well, one day there's going to be, quote, a wedding, or we're going to go into the kingdom. What do I have to do to be prepared for it? The answer is what? Live righteously. Don't be a hypocrite. See, there are a lot of people in those seven churches of Asia Minor that said, Lord, Lord! But guess what? They were bowing the knee to Caesar. See, so we have to watch out for hypocrisy here. So then, that's the key right there. The wedding dress is clean, white, and it represents the righteous acts of the saints. Now let me ask you this. Let's just throw this out for a second. This is a thought I just had. It's not a good thought, but it's one that's probably, I want to say anyway. Let's imagine a girl gets uh, engaged. Very good girl, pure girl. But then, between the time she is engaged and the time she gets married, she goes and sleeps with a whole bunch of people. Would that be preparing for her wife? No. In fact, remember in the old days? This is for those of you who are really old-timers like I am. <laughs> we always look for something on a wedding day. Was she wearing white? Was she wearing a white dress? Mm. Because if she didn't wear a white dress, <laughs> we knew what that meant, didn't we? <clears throat> So, but now everybody wears a white dress, doesn't matter what they're doing. So, but that's, that's the gist of what's happening here. In order to be prepared for the wedding, uh, the wife, the, the, the betrothed, is to be faithful to her husband-to-be. She's not to sleep around with everybody else. Or to put it in spiritual terms, she's not to play the harlot with other gods. the Roman gods, and declare that Caesar is Lord. So God, the, the word comes down from heaven that we are to prepare for this wedding feast by our righteous acts. It can be seen. Your confession can be heard, but your 
righteous acts can be seen. And then we have a benediction in verse 9. Look what it says. Then he said to me, Write. And we don't know exactly who this voice is that's saying this. But he gives John instructions in the vision. I want you to write something down. Here it is. It's a beatitude. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. You have God's word on it. God, I want to tell you something. Whoever is called to the wedding feast of the Lamb is blessed indeed. Now, this is one of seven Beatitudes in Revelation. Blessed are blessed is the person who reads the word of this prophecy and eats them. That's the first Beatitude. This is another Beatitude. Blessed is the person who is called to the wedding feast. Now, the wedding feast is basically symbolic of the kingdom. Blessed is the person who, when the Lord returns, is resurrected and divided into the kingdom. Okay? Now, who is the blessed person who will be invited? Based on the verse right before. Who's the person who will be invited into the wedding feast? Based on the verse before it. It's the person who's what? Prepared and righteous in their actions. See? Not the hypocrites. Jesus said this. He said one day, he said... At the judgment, I'm gonna, there'll be people standing there and they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we? He said, look, I didn't know you. So you have to be very careful here. So here's the person who's blessed. That's the blessed person. The one who is called. Now I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice that word called. See that? Getting into the kingdom starts with God calling us into the kingdom. The one called is, is blessed. We could just say the opposite. The one who's not called is what? Not blessed. That's the person who's cursed. He's going to go down with the Roman Empire and all the other empires of the world who've lived ungodly. But notice the word called. So getting into the kingdom does not come through absolute free choice. Getting into the kingdom doesn't come by your absolute free choice. You must first be invited. That's every wedding, isn't it? Otherwise, you're wedding crasher. Jesus talks about people who try to get in over the fence, climb over, climb around. They're not going to get in. In order to be getting to this wedding feast, you must first be called. You must first be invited. That's God's part. He does the inviting. Our part is doing the responding. So God calls, RSVP, and then guess what we have to do? We have to respond. <laughs> we have to respond to that invitation. And although Jesus called many, he said, oh, how I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. That was my desire, but you would not. So we have this, this beatitude, but always on the negative side of the beatitude, we can say is, Woe is the person who is not called. Now, the kingdom is characterized here as a wedding feast. <clears throat> this is why eating is so important. Somebody came to me, I think it was Bob Osborne, came and said, all you do is talk about, or John, all John talks about, and you, is about eating. That's a good thing. <clears throat> because the kingdom is characterized by eating. 
And every time we eat the Lord's Supper, we're anticipating the kingdom of God to come. We're since we get a we get we participate in it in a real little way right here in this lifetime. And one day, so we're going to be preparing. This is why we ever you ever wonder why we sing? Because in the kingdom, guess what there is? Singing. Worship today is an anticipation of worship in the future. Eating today is an anticipating of eating in the future. So here he says that blessed is that person. And so we eat the Lord's Supper until he comes. Remember Jesus at the Last Supper? He lifted the cup and the, the bread and he said, I will not eat this meal with you again until I eat it in the kingdom. All pointing to the kingdom, which is to come. And then look at verse 10. John says this, And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. What's going on here? What causes John to bow down and worship this being here? In fact, we think it's probably an angel. Uh, John knows he shouldn't worship a created being, doesn't he? Why does John fall down and worship a creation rather than the creator? Right here in this scene, in his vision, in his vision, he falls down and he worships this created being. He knows he shouldn't do that. I think he just gets caught up in the emotion of it. In the excitement of the moment. This, this is, he's saying, hey, this is what it's going to look like. This is God's avenging, his vindicating his saints. And he gets so caught up, he just falls down and he starts worshiping this being. And the being has to rebuke him. And John has enough sense to put it in here. So let me tell you about a mistake that I made when all this was going on. I fell down and worshiped an angel. I'd have kept that out of there, wouldn't you? I wouldn't tell anybody I did something stupid as that. John, John says, I, this is how I know it's inspired. <laughs> inspired people uh, tell the truth, and people who aren't inspired try to hide the truth. John tells the truth. He said, I worship, and this angel said, don't do this. And look what he says in the middle of verse 10. I am your fellow servant. And your brethren who have the testimony, and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Uh, see, angels are not above us. Did you ever think of that? Often we think angels are more important than humans. But no, Hebrews says angels are spirits who serve the heirs of salvation. They're our servants. Paul says one day we're going to judge the angels. Now, who's more important? The one who judges, the one who gets judged. See, uh, we are really higher than angels, or we certainly will be at one time, and so angels are just like us. They're servants who are testifying to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so look, the angel gives John instructions, and here's what it is, right toward the end of verse 9. It says, Worship God! Exclamation point. Worship God. Now, if you really want to know what the book of Revelation is about, that's it right there. The whole book can be summarized in that one phrase. Worship God. See, what's happening in the church, seven churches of Asia Minor? They're not really worshiping God, are they? They're giving allegiance to Caesar. They're saying Caesar's divine. Hey, this is the answer to idolatry. You want to know the answer to idolatry? Worship God. See, now, what does that mean to worship God? Remember when Satan came in the temptation with Jesus and he said, 
All this is yours if you'll just do what? Bow down and worship me. But you remember Jesus' answer? Thou shalt worship the Lord God and Him only, and, ah, He adds an element. Thou shalt worship the Lord God and Him only, and serve Him. And to serve Him. Because the person that you truly worship is the one that you serve. And that's why righteous acts are so important in the preparation for entering the kingdom of God. And then we come to the end of this section. The angel says, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The witness about Jesus the word about Jesus, our confession of Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy. This is how you know, this is how you judge a prophecy. Wonder how to judge a prophecy? It's pretty simple. Wonder how to judge a prophet, whether he's from God or not? Pretty simple. Wonder how to judge a preacher? Pretty simple. Here's the answer. Does the prophet, does the prophecy, does the preacher testify of Jesus Christ? Does he say, Jesus is Lord? Jesus is Lord. You say, that doesn't seem so important. Well, let me tell you, in Roman times it would, because who was claiming to be Lord? It could have cost you your life. See, here's how you testify a prophecy. Does the prophet say, Jesus is Lord? That's why Paul says in Corinthians, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by Spirit of God. The Spirit of prophecy. You want to know if it's from the Holy Spirit? You want to know if it's from the demon spirit? Here it is. Jesus is the Lord. Now, what is the implications? If Jesus is the Lord, what does that make me? Sir. So, it's not that you just say the words, Jesus is the Lord. It's mean that you say it and you live out that statement that Jesus is is Lord. You say Jesus is Lord and you live for Him. And so that concludes this section. And I think in John's mind he probably thought this was going to be curtain time and then the Lord was going to come and the kingdom of God was going to be set up. Probably didn't happen, it didn't happen that way. I know that. Uh, and so right in verse 11 he just starts talking about the second coming of Christ. And so that's where we'll pick up after our break. And this is going to conclude this section of Revelation. And next week we'll start our Psalms for the summer and we will go from Psalm 28 to Psalm 41. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are people of faith. As we think about one of our own this week, Wayne McGuffey, and his faithfulness over the years to the Lord, been rewarded. He can say with the multitudes today, hallelujah, hallelujah, salvation, glory, honor from the Lord. Lord, we've seen an example uh, in our own midst uh, just in these past few days. Help us to be faithful to the end. Help us to be faithful servants. Help us to proclaim and live out the confession of Jesus is Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.